Today's episode of Undesign comes to you from the land of the Wajuk people of the Noongar Nation. We acknowledge and pay respects to all elders past, present and emerging. Have we started recording? Oh, cool. We're already recording anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Cheeky boy. <laughs> Hello everyone, welcome to Undesign. I'm your host, Costa Lucas. Thank you so much for joining me on this mammoth task to untangle the world's wicked problems and redesign new futures. I know firsthand that we all have so much we can bring to these big challenges, so listen in and see where you fit in the solution as we undesign the topic of public safety, mandates and freedom in the age of COVID-19. Now the pandemic pretty much needs no more explanation. It seems that it has affected almost all aspects of everyone's lives, anyone, anywhere. What seemed to have emerged as a problem, however, is the polarization that comes with it. From face masks, lockdowns, contact tracing apps to vaccinations, there seems to be two groups of pros and cons, those who pursue public and community safety and those who pursue individual freedom. The notion that the government can dictate what a person should and should not wear and inject into their body seems to be seen as invading personal rights to freedom. Where do we draw the line between civic responsibility and personal responsibility? Or should the two walk hand in hand anyway? Helping us untangle this wicked problem in our latest episode is our special guest, Dr. Katie Atwell. Katie is a senior lecturer in the School of Social Sciences at the University of Western Australia and an Australian Research Council Discovery Early Career Researcher Award Fellow. She is interested in the intersection of policy, identity, attitudes, and behavior as they pertain to health consumers, healthcare providers, and governance. In 2014, Katie researched, designed, and delivered and evaluated an internationally recognized public health campaign, I Immunize. She also leads the large interdisciplinary research project, Coronavax, preparing community and government with colleagues from UWA and the Telethon Kids Institute. In this incredibly relatable and approachable conversation, Katie eloquently helps us to untangle what health mandates look like, both pre and post COVID-19. She then takes us through what we know about the many fears and doubts people have on vaccination, and even going so far as to share a very personal experience of hers, as well as her own research. Ultimately, what it comes down to is discussing how we encourage the community to use our privilege to realize public safety together. Right, Katie, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Yeah, I imagine you've had a really, really busy few months and probably about the topic that we're here to talk about today. So I'm just going to dive straight in and let's just get straight to the fundamentals, right? From your point of view, how do you define a health mandate? Like what exactly is it when we talk about this topic that everyone seems to be banding about right now? So a health mandate, do you want me to talk about a health mandate or a vaccine mandate? Actually, both. And, you know, how those two things are related, I guess. Sure. Well, I guess other health mandates relating to behaviour such as wearing masks or quarantining or checking into venues are usually more underpinned by the force of the law, as in, you know, there will be a penalty applied to you in the form of a fine if you don't comply. Vaccine mandates are a bit of a broader category. So when it comes to vaccine mandates, The definition I usually use of a vaccine mandate is something that kind of makes non-vaccination consequential, like it imposes a sort of serious consequence that you can't really get out of. So 
If, for example, you need to be vaccinated to go into pubs and hotels, no one's saying you're going to get fined if you go in. They might say that, but, but they might actually just be saying you've got to show proof in order to go in. And somebody will probably get fined. It might be the hotel that gets fined if they let you in. Yeah, sure. Have. So it's not necessarily about the behaviour being extracted from you via a stick, It's which is why some people think of them as more like incentives, although I think it's very much in the eye of the beholder. One person's stick is another person's carrot. So really it's about not being vaccinated means there are consequences and that could mean it could even be as simple as, and we see this in South Australia with a member of federal parliament, not being vaccinated meant you got dragged off into hotel quarantine for 14 days when you arrived. Being vaccinated might mean you just cruise in and, you know, go to the pub. It's where there's a kind of cost associated between not being vaccinated and being vaccinated and and that's deliberately done. They've used policy levers to apply a cost to not vaccinating. And, by the way, not just governments, but also the private sector might do it too. Sure, sure. And any examples free. of that that you think are oh, sure. any examples of that? Yeah. So, so, well, so the private sector and governments can do it to people in quite a few ways. So you can do it in employment. So you can, governments can say everybody working in the healthcare sector needs to be vaccinated in order to keep working or everybody who's a teacher needs to be vaccinated in order to keep working. But the sector themselves can do it. So a mining company can say, if you work for us, whether you're out on the mine or whether you are in the head office in, in the city, you must be vaccinated. Now, we've seen that one such mandate was recently overturned that BHP had sought to introduce to one of their mining sites in, I believe, New South Wales. That was overturned on the grounds of not being lawful because they had not consulted, which is interesting. But when government decides to do it, which they've done in WA, they haven't necessarily consulted or if they have, you know, it doesn't have to have been very clear and transparent. They yeah, can like, sure. think this is a good idea. So that's 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 the private sector or government doing it to people through work, but they can also do it through going into places. So the government, like in New South Wales and Victoria, they've got requirements to be vaccinated in order to go to the pub or go to the pizza restaurant, and government says that. So government says we will bust an individual venue if they've let you in because we've said they can't. But then my hairdresser in Fremantle, Western Australia, has said, I'm not cutting the hair of anybody who's not fully vaccinated. Show me your vaccination certificate every time you come and have your hair cut by me. If I can't see it, I don't want to see you. That's her as a private business, you know, imposing her own mandate because, and, and she can do that for a variety of reasons. So she could be doing it because she has a health condition, but actually she's not. She's doing it because she saw health workers overseas getting sick and dying of COVID and she was really cross at the people in her circle who didn't vaccinate and she's a very in-demand hairdresser so she actually turned people away. She's got some leverage. She's got leverage and she'll use it. So that's that's her decision. You know, you might say, well, she could be accused of discrimination. Uh, The law is pretty clear that governments and businesses are allowed to discriminate in this way because not vaccinating is not a protected status. Unlike something I can't control, like the colour of my skin. I was going to say. Or a disability, like that stuff you're kind of stuck with. But you choosing something to do with your vaccination status is a choice. If you genuinely can't be vaccinated, then you would have a medical exemption and then you are treated as if you were vaccinated under all of these policies. So it's very clear that you don't use the stick against people when 
it would not be of reasonable course. to ask them to be vaccinated. That's right. Where it breaches basic principles of justice and equity, really, where you're you're punishing people, you know, who otherwise can't comply with a a public and a public order like that. Yeah. Like hearing you speak about that, Katie. You know, I guess you know discrimination legislation as we know it. That's very attribute based. Whereas the decision to vaccinate or not vaccinate on, you know, in the absence of an exemption is not an attribute, which is unlawfully discriminatory. Even drawing the distinction between health mandate and vaccine mandate is something I hadn't actually considered before. Because the way that we talk about mandates at the moment seems to obviously be driven by the vaccine at the moment, or you know. As well. People yeah. I was going to say, yeah. what, is, what is our what is our history with mandates of this nature generally and what are our attitudes towards them from well, your point of view? Again, so, you know, a mandate is a sort of, in some ways a bit of a loose concept and, and to tighten it up really means that you are using law. And as we've talked about, not all of these are about using law or some of them are about using but yeah, they might be using regulations or they might just be about using orders, which is a little bit mm. different. So I guess, you know, obviously some well-known mandates from history would be like making people wear seatbelts, which again, that that usually has the word compulsory attached to it. So compulsory is a little bit different as well. I mean, you know, what does it mean when it's compulsory? Voting. You do it or you get fined. You wear your seatbelt or you get fined. It's pretty binary and it's kind of got the power of the law behind it. But if you want to think about mandates as, as behavioural tools more broadly, there's actually a mandate for rich people to get private health insurance. So basically if you earn lots of money, you either have to pay a Medicare levy, which is a certain percentage of your income, and I know as a high income earner myself I pay it, and it's non-trivial, it's several hundreds of dollars, and so... That was put in by the Howard government and the alternative, the way to get out of paying that levy is to take out a private health insurance policy of sufficient level that you are off getting treated in the private sector. Now, for myself, as someone who is ideologically opposed to private health insurance and the concept of private health, I've, I've chosen to pay the, the levy and think of that as money I'm putting back into the into the health system. Uh, for sure. Probably not. It's probably going on something else. But, uh, <laughs> but but that is actually a mandate. And likewise, I'm not as well informed about this. My colleague, Dr Adam Hanna, is much more informed about this as a US health policy and social policy expert. But he talks about how the same sort of thing was connected to Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, which was the big, and again, I'm not, you know, this is not my area of expertise, but... That was a big, bold move to make sure that that everybody, you know, in some way would be covered by insurance and not and stop the horrific, um, mitigate, I guess, some of the horrific, you know, really perverse consequences that ensued in America's kind of lack of a public health system. Right. So certainly that was talked about there a lot as a mandate. Interesting. So, yeah, and then, yeah, so mand- and then you get governments who get elected and they're like, we've got a mandate. So mandates have a weird meaning and I, I don't know that all of them line up super well, but I can see the commonality between the one like the Medicare levy and the co- and sort of the coercion towards private health. Right. I, I can see that makes sense to me in the same way that you're like, well, if your kid's not vaccinated, they're not going to childcare. It's the same thing. It's like we're going to impose a consequence. It's your choice. You know, find yourself choosing between vaccinating and something pretty rubbish or find yourself choosing between private health insurance or we're going to slug you another way. Wow. I really fail to appreciate how much this echoes some of my 
legal training, like, you know, in a previous life when I studied law and thinking about like coercion versus, you know, having to honor a contract term, which is onerous, you know, these sorts of principles between choice and consequence is really interesting. Because I mean, from my, you know, initial research into this space anyway, is just this looking at discourse. And again, I know you've, you've interviewed people about their attitudes towards various types of mandates, right? Particularly in the context of a vaccination mandate. This, this thing keeps popping up between like, I'm essentially, I'm as good as being forced into doing something if all these options around me are taken away. So it's like, you're just existing on this island because all these options are taken away from you. And then the language of human rights gets invoked about like, where is that line? Is there a clear line? No, because of course, to even think about that way is to situate yourself within the position of the individual who is being asked to make a choice and you know, this this has been, you know, we see that seeing this in the anti-vaccination protests, anti-mandate protests that are springing up in Australia now. But, you know, we've seen it, you know, I've been studying people's attitudes and responses to no jab, no pay and no jab, no play policies and then how policymakers justify those decisions. The trouble with all of it, though, is if you're to put yourself in the position of a person who's saying, I really, really don't want to be vaccinated and, and therefore I'll walk away from my job or I'll homeschool my you know, not homeschool, that's more of an American thing, but I'll, I'll, my kids won't go to childcare or we'll do without Centrelink. So for those people, they feel really coerced. Um, and the policymakers will say, well, they're not coerced. They've got a choice. They can cop the consequence we're giving them or they can vaccinate. But here's, here's the reason I don't think there's a clear answer. For every person who feels coerced, another person gets to move more safely in a community. So that person's human rights and their freedoms have to be part of the mix as well. And that's why governments and us as, as voters have got really, you know, big responsibilities to sort of weigh because for every teacher who says, that's it, I'm I'm out of the classroom, I'm being coerced, I don't want to do that, a parent of a kid with comorbidities goes, thank God, my kid's going to be a little bit safer going back to school next year. So, yeah. how, and, and that's the thing. And, and, and one of the ways you can navigate through that pathway is to try and have really good evidence about what the mandate's doing and what the intervention is doing. So, for example, if we know that, and, and one of the things that we sort of, you know, that we've, we've been finding out about the vaccines, for example, is that if you're vaccinated, you're about half as likely to transmit the disease to somebody else. So never mind how sick you get. And, of course, you get a lot of the sick and that's all you don't get sick at all and that's part of the reasons but not the whole reasons why you're less likely to transmit it to other people. But let's say if we work from the rule of thumb that someone who's vaccinated is about half as likely to transmit COVID to somebody else mm-hmm. and to somebody who's unvaccinated, then that that's sort of that's become some of the data that you kind of want to bring into this consideration. Because, you know, then you're looking at like, well, okay, so here's a cancer patient who's going to be immune compromised for six months, nine months while they're going through chemo and recovering. So what kind of decisions can that person make? Does that person go, oh, that's it, I'm just staying at home in in a chamber, (laughs) you know, like Mm -hmm. a bubble for for nine (laughs) months? Or does that person go, yep, okay, I'm going to go into places where I'll go to a restaurant occasionally, but only if it's well sanitised, but I'm definitely not going to the Royal Show. Like you can imagine all those considerations that that person might make. And so in some ways a mandate is like 
doing a bit of work for that person and saying, okay, we know that you're going to go into these settings and they're not, they're not risk-free. You might still get sick. And if you get sick, it might still be really bad. Yeah. But we could have taken away like half of that risk. And risk is weird. And we all have to, as well as having government policies that manage it for us, like, you know, at certain level of risk, everyone wears a mask. At certain level of risk, everybody stays home. At certain level of risk, you can't leave. All that stuff. But at some point, we all then have to grapple with what we think is the appropriate risk for ourselves within those settings. So yeah. the kind of risk that an immune compromised person might have to grapple with in a setting where government's gone, we're going to take some of this heavy lifting for you. We're going to, we can make these places at least half. I'm, I'm going to get the maths wrong, but we can make you know we can we can make these places a certain percentage of amount safe for you. And Conceptually, then, it makes sense. Yeah, and then you might still decide it's not safe enough, in which case stay home. But if you brave it, you'll be safer than if we hadn't done it. Yeah. You know, again, Katie, hearing you reframe it like that as like people's resistance to mandates being seeing it from the point of view of someone like feeling coerced and not seeing it from the point of view of someone who's probably like in the inverse situation where they have to make these decisions to stay away from situations we all readily enjoy because of conditions they might have that might be exacerbated. Where I, I, I see, I mean, I see a role in good public health messaging in that in that sense right to like to tell those stories or to foreground those stories i do as well and, and yeah. i tell them as much as i can sure um, and try and talk about people with those experiences i think it's quite helpful as well because they're both sort of smaller groups actually people with comorbidities would be a much bigger group than people who want to vaccinate but they're both non-mainstream experiences and they're both the groups whose liberties will be most put under strain mm. right whereas everybody in the middle might have some discomfort about mandates or you know might not be that excited about getting vaccinated but is doing it but yeah most of us are kind of muddling along in the middle and but also to be clear those of us who are muddling on along in the middle are also kept safer in society where more people are vaccinated or when unvaccinated people are not allowed into certain settings right but again I, you know to play devil's advocate you know, it, you do want to have some some scientific veracity to back that up. You don't just want to do mandates because it seems like a fair thing to do for the immune compromised. You do want to be able to somehow quantify what, because it's a trade-off. You are, you, you're not only cutting off the freedoms of some people, you're also potentially cutting off their income stream. Also, you're potentially radicalising them and sending them off into the arms of the far right. Well, if you want to do any one of those things, you want to be really clear what you think the projected benefits for other people are. Mm. Do you think that's become a bit of a challenge? Like looking at this in a political climate where university spaces and resourcing seems to be shrinking, there is this sort of quote unquote, and I hate using this term, like cultural war between like left and right and progressives and conservatives and all that, all that jazz. Where where academic work and research tends to be the domain of more left, like in, in this really crass binary mm. where research evidence comes from the left institutions, do you think that task becomes harder in relying on an evidence base like that? Because people who are already radicalized or polarized in one way or another interpret that as propaganda or 
as, you know, poke holes in it or whatever it is. And it kind of results in more of a division. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? I do. I think it's the way you've put it is really interesting and uh, sort of a bit different from the ways I've thought about it previously. Sure. What I would think more is that, you know, for people who are not believing in COVID or not believing the science or not believing the, the me- medical recommendations, they've already discredited universities as places. So never mind the left-right thing, they've they, they seen universities as places that are captured by pharma or yeah. by other interests. They see government the same way. In terms of, sorry, there's something else I was going to add as well. Uh, so you were saying, oh, yeah, so are they going to get radicalised? Are, are they going to, is it going to yeah. feed into the culture? Well, yeah, that's right. The other thing I was going to say was certainly in America, Mm. And, and I'm not, you know, I think I think you could probably extrapolate that here as well. But in America, I've been doing some work there on California in particular where they got rid of, basically they made childhood vaccination more mandatory than it had ever been before and, that, you know, you couldn't get out of it very easily. Uh, so I'm writing a book about that at the moment, finishing a book, in fact, I should say, with my dear oh, good. Professor Mark Navin, who oh, is a scholar. So as part of that, we've been looking at kind of political trends in other states over time all pre-COVID, but then also during COVID. And basically there's a very clear trend whereby it's the Democrats who are, so, the, you know, the, the more left, the ones who are prepared to go hard on on public health governance and squeezing vaccine refusers, whereas the political right is always more willing to go, well, we value your liberty, we want to, you know, we don't want to tell you what to do, we don't like the big state. So from, but also interestingly, from one paper that come out, came out in 2017, Looking at earlier data, I think that was the year it was published, but I think the data that it was looking on was a bit earlier than that, compared to some work that I've just led with, in fact, wonderful success story I want to share. Please. My beloved second-year student intern who was working with me just published a lead author paper, a little research paper in the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, uh, which is like huge impact factor, so widely read, so this lovely little teenager uh, published this oh, paper. that's so good. That was so good. Anyway, so I was a co-author on that with her along with a couple of American scholars. One of the things we found just even changing, but and, well, not that we found in that paper, but what, what we what the, what we could see comparing that to that earlier paper I was talking about is that 2017 paper shows it was always Republicans who were, sorry, it was, it was always Republicans who were trying to make it easy to get out of vaccinating. But it was both Republicans and Democrats that in some cases were trying to make it harder to get out of vaccinating. Oh. Right? So, yeah. But certainly the Democrats are much more likely to, to want to make it harder to get out of it. They want to make the Republicans, sorry, the, the Democrats want to make you vaccinate. The Republicans want to make it easier for you not to. But there were Republicans also trying to make you vaccinate. That was in 2017. Come the period we've just looked at, we looked at how many legislative interventions had been introduced, legislative or executive orders, governor, governor um, decrees, et cetera, and they were so politically polarised, like all of the ones to make it more difficult to, to require vaccination, to make it easy to get out of it. They were all Republicans by then, and then the ones making it, seeking to make it uh, harder to get out of that state were all Democrats. So just in a few short years, they have completely polarised. So the Democrats have become the party of big state, big health and big coercion, if, you know, for better or worse, and, you know, you take your pick on that. And the Republicans have become the party of resistance, resisting that and of allowing and really allowing that individual to have their choices. But, of course, taking out of the frame 
the impact for society, whereas the Democrats are like, well, we're, we're doing this for the good of society. We're doing this for the, we're doing this for the immune compromised. Now let's flash over to Australia. I mean, if you look to where the dissent is coming from for our vaccine mandates, it's not coming from the Labor Party and it's not coming from the Greens. It will be coming from some people who the Greens rely on as voters. I know that the Greens, there's been a bit of disruption at sort of the grassroots of the Greens because the kind of hippie, progressive people who vote for the Greens, some of them don't want to be vaccinated and then they feel very let down by the Greens because the Greens are like, well, we're evidence-based, so we're supporting vaccination. Even if they're not supporting mandate, they're supporting vaccination. Mm, mm, but where's the dissent? Well, it's on the far right of the spectrum, but it's also on the far right of the Liberal Party and the National Party, right? Well, you've got those people, you've got your George Christensen, you've, you know, you've got your Alex Antig, you've got these guys breaking rank. And it's to me, it's 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 entirely predictable and expected that you I was gonna say, on. is that pretty to be expected? Well, aligning with the American stuff, yes, it is yeah. because yeah. because they, number one, they don't like it personally, and so they're betting in for themselves. But number two, they want to they want to prioritise the individual. And I think if you want to prioritise the individual, you look for the closest shackle. And it's and if someone's making me do something I don't want to do, that's a very clear shackle I want to throw off. And if I come to you and say, yeah, but what about the person with lupus? They want they want to be free to go to the pub too. Yeah, it's a yeah. bit too abstract. It's a bit too, mm. you know, oh, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, making that other person have the vaccine, oh, that's bad. On the mind of the freedom of the person with lupus. Gosh, and that speaks so much to sort of social capital theory, basically, where it's just kind of this idea of, I mean, I think it was Robert Putnam when he did the bowling alone stuff around like people's attitudes towards different religions and like the variable that he found that made the most difference was just kind of like, exposure to people of diff like from different faiths in your ordinary social life as well. And it's kind of similar here where it's like, well, when you've got exposure to people who are in vulnerable sort of positions, it would make sense that you might be more likely to might be more inclined to empathize. Whereas what I feel like I'm hearing a lot of even in my own personal networks is just the people that they most of the people around me are exposed to are just that small number of people who are resistant or hesitant or, you know, full-blown anti-vax or whatever. And they're finding it really hard to bridge that sort of that gap that they're feeling with loved ones who have a very different view on these things. And I've had a few conversations, be, like people reach out, like again, because my, my background's in extremism and terrorism and radicalization and people are like, oh, well, how do you, how do you bridge that divide? Like, how do I talk to someone that is so like, diametrically opposed that I really care about. And I'm kind of, I, I get a bit stumped because it, it's easy for me to say like, well, try and understand the emotion right. under it. You know, it's a long game, not a short game. You know, you're not going to like, what, what cards are you showing of yourself? You know, don't go into a conversation knowing that, uh, you know, with this belief that you know more than the other person, like try and as much turn it into a mutual quest for some sort of truth. But when we're talking about public safety and people's lives being at risk, it can be really hard to bridge that gap with people where you feel so diametrically opposed. Mm. Um, and I, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that, Katie, around how mandates affect how society interacts with each other. Like you kind of touched on it there in that example, but do we know the long-term effects of say very oppressive or just, you know, coercive, strict 
mandates, hard mandates on how societies then coexist after such measures? Well, so this is one of the things that Mark Naven and I are grappling with in our book as we finish our final draft and sort of pull the arguments from all the chapters we've been writing together. And I think we still have to have a few more conversations about this in the next month as we sort of finalise our draft. But one of the things that that really strikes me is that if you follow the the California story where the Democrats, you know, with civil society taking the lead, the Democrats lead this reform to 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 really what what they did was they got rid of the an exemption for personal belief. And you might say, what the, what is the point of a personal belief exemption? The point of a personal belief exemption is you want to make vaccination the norm, so you require people to be vaccinated in order to enter school or childcare things like that. But then you say, look, if you really want to get out of it, you can go and see a doctor and they can counsel you that you're making a bad decision. And then at the end of that, they can give you an exemption and then you don't have to vaccinate because you've got the exemption. And having that kind of intervention there is better than just having a free-for-all of like nothing at all, right, because it it cues the norm of vaccinating. So what California did in 2015 was get rid of that exemption. So, oh, my God, then there were all these other dramas like then everyone flocked to medical exemptions because they were pretty easy to get Then they had to crack down those. There's all these dramas. But anyway, to go back to what we're grappling with is that that victory that the Democrats won and and that sort of those civil society pro-vax activists won in 2015 could very well be the difference between that sort of 2017 paper I just described where you've got Democrats and Republicans both supporting vaccination to what we're seeing now in 2021, which is, you know, extremely really polarised. And so one of the things we're grappling with in the book is like, the long and, and so and we're sort of drawing a direct line to the people that stormed the Capitol to like the full you know the and to the full Trump fiasco, you know we're not saying that we're not saying that the, the Democrats and the civil society pro-vax activists who brought this about, you know, with, with the, there's not a smoking gun going back to mm. people, and and indeed I wouldn't want to say that because they because I have a lot of sympathy for what they did as well. Like I yeah support, sure. Yeah, I support the I support the their efforts to make society safer for, for vulnerable people. So, however, it, it, you know, one of the things that vaccination social scientists talk about is reactants, which is you know you and, and they talk about it often at an individual level. You're going to make me well, I'm not doing it, and I and people keep anecdotally saying this to me about the mandates that have come in in Western Australia. Oh, you know, so and so was you know was maybe going to do it and now the mandates come in and they're not going to do it. And I think, well, really, if they were going to do it, they would have done it by now. So I'm, I'm a bit sceptical. However, so people talk about reactance on a personal level, but I think there's reactance at a identitarian level, at a, at a collective level, at the level that my social and psychological identity is tied up with other people's. So now we as a collective are shifting to the right or we are shifting to a, you know, a non-science position. So I think the risks of mandates are high. That said, I think the risks of COVID-19 are really high too. Sure. Yeah. Very, very fair. And obviously the evidence that we have currently backs you on that too, you know, otherwise you wouldn't feel that way. What about in situations then where it's a real, I mean, COVID is an evolving situation, right? But I I throw my mind back to sort of mask mandates Mm. and like in the early days of COVID, some of the really confusing public directions we were getting around like the efficacy of mask wearing and 
you know, I know there's arguments about like, you know, people were initially discouraged from like buying up all the masks because there weren't enough of PPE for like healthcare workers and stuff like that. Mm. How, what's the role of public messaging in conveying changing information like it, it or, or, or accounting for changes in what we know, right? Because again, perhaps this might be a flawed social narrative we have about the nature of research, which is like, it is there to tell us exactly what the world is, not just what we think we know based on how far we've looked into something, you know, at, at that point in time, you know, so yeah. research as being a finite source of truth, as opposed to an observation of a particular set of variables at a particular point in time that needs to continue to be monitored. How do you deal with situations like the mask mandate where, or just mask directions where things change and the 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 instructions were confusing yes. or, you know and disputed yeah and gosh i mean i'd even go for an example closer to my wheelhouse than the mask mandate is changing advice around the astrazeneca vaccine oh sure yeah I mean, that was good call that was a big struggle absolutely and and these beautiful people who do this really deep scientific calculations about what the risk should be mm. you know they they are not all of them the same people who are gifted with the now sort of skills of public communication. Some of them are. Some have got a dual skill set and others are there nutting out this evidence and then they've also got to figure out how to socialise it and have it. And, and then the government's got to decide if they're going to listen to these people or if they're going to bring in other other considerations as well. So, you know, I think all of us in the last two years have had such a, yeah, such a lesson in like, like I call it sort of making policy on quicksand or or, or, or giving advice on quicksand. And gosh, the number yeah. of times I'd be out talking about, especially early in the rollout, I'd be out talking, you know, in the media about about vaccination, about the safety and efficacy of vaccination, about why it's important, about why people should be doing it. At the same time, knowing that like the ground I'm standing on is shifting as I speak and and how do I even feel safe to communicate as a communicator with all the knowledge I have, and, and if I'm st if I'm struggling, how's the public going? Yeah. So I, I don't I don't know that there are clear answers to this. It's like it's during a crisis. Like imagine, you know, there's a massive earthquake, and every everyone's just running in a million directions, and it's chaos. I mean that that's how I imagine an earthquake is. But if you're mm -hmm. if you're someone who like if you're in somewhere like Japan and you've designed buildings around it, or if you've if you're like the risk not the one they call like the disaster preparedness people. Yeah, the way they would think about an earthquake is a bit different from the way I would, which is just like to run screaming in every direction. <laughs> so I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that we've all had a lot to learn about about how to do this stuff better, but it also has been an earthquake and there's just been a lot of running screaming in every direction. Yeah. And so I've been one of those people in this setting who needed to be not the person running screaming in every direction, but the person going, okay, I think I've got something to bring to the table. I think I can help. Lots of other people could help in you know, much more significant ways than I can in terms of figuring out the safety, the efficacy, and the the what the rollout should look like, and who should get what when. You know, those are the, those are the absolutely crucial questions. But those are the questions that that can change over time. I think we need to keep having a public discourse around, like you talked about, the fact that that science is shifting. I'll give you an example of how I think I was able to use that in a positive way. I was on a Channel Seven Flashpoint earlier this week with a doctor and a political journalist who is very fired up and passionate. She's got a kid with comorbidities. So we were, I guess, the, the, the pro-vaccination side. And then there was a teacher, a police officer, 
and a nurse who had all decided to give away their careers rather than be vaccinated. So it was on a commercial station. It was pretty, pretty sensationalist, as you can imagine. But it was, you know, it also was a, a, a decent civil, civic exchange. And at the end of it, and unfortunately, in my opinion, the better parts of it didn't make it to air. So they put the whole thing on the Channel 7 Flashpoint Facebook page, which they said they were doing to not be accused of like censorship and whatever. But actually, I'm glad they did it because I think my some of my points got better ventilation on the Facebook sure. post. But so this didn't make it onto TV, but it did make it onto the onto the post, onto the broader video. And at the end of it, one of the people said, you know, which is a common argument that vaccine refusers will say, and they say, I want the long-term safety data. Like it's, you know, I don't want to do it without it. It's, we don't have the long-term safety profile of these vaccines. And I was like, dude, it's a pandemic. We want to wait five years while everybody around us dies, then we'll have that data. But, but the bigger point that I was making is that in the history of vaccination, we've never seen a vaccine that gives you long-term problems. I was just about to ask yeah. you. That. So if there's a problem, you see it in the short term, in the medium term. And I said to these guys, you know, we we do have those signals. We do have those systems. And in fact, that's what broke our rollout. Like we, mm. we were all supposed to have AZ and we didn't because those systems did their job. And we learned that the vaccine was not so, not so safe in a context of no COVID. If you have COVID, you roll out that vaccine as they did in the Eastern States. But in places with no COVID and, and, and another vaccine available, albeit more sort of drip fed supplies more slowly, they made the choice to prefer one over the other. So I kind of tried to use that as a way of showing that science is always changing and, yes, it's confusing, but it's reassuring. So you might not have five years of safety data you wish you had, but you do have the evidence that the experts are watching what's happening in real time mm. and being agile in their response to that. Yeah, which is really re- which is really reassuring unless you're that 5 to 1% that has an adverse reaction or that has, you know what I mean, or has some misfortune that results from it. You know, like however I guess the way I rationalize it in my head, Katie, and I and you know, tell me what you think of this, but it's like it's reassuring in in the abstract, but no one wants to be that 1%, right? And perhaps there is a bit of an a negativity bias at play there with certain people that their their fear is being that one percent. They're like, I know that there's a ninety eight percent chance or whatever it is that I'll be okay or I'll get through whatever happens. But if I'm that two percent, I am screwed. And like you know, that makes the whole enterprise, you know, void or whatever it is. And do you think that's a a negativity bias just kind of flaring up, maybe as a reaction to our own survival instincts kicking in? I think the research I've done and others have done absolutely backs that up. I remember doing some research years ago into people who were hesitant or refusing vaccines for their kids. And one of them was sort of saying, oh, my kid was the one in however many that has this completely unrelated health condition. And then he's the one in however many who they get treated for it and the treatment doesn't work for. Right. So I'm used to my kid being the unicorn. I'm used to my kid being this thing that bad things happen to. So surely when it comes to vaccination, my kid's going to be unlucky yet again. Yeah. Absolutely. In our COVID-19 vaccination study called Coronavax, yes. we found the same thing again. It's basically people going, I'm worried about those effects because I think that that I'm going to be the one they happen to. Right. And I think, you know, talking about it with you now, Costa, I do think this is possibly an unexplored 
area because the way we think about and kind of frame risk is is very informed not just by yeah not just by our experiences and our beliefs but also perhaps by our personality and sort of are we glass half full half empty all that stuff so I, I absolutely think that yeah that, and the statistics are no comfort at all if if you don't interpret them in that same abstract way that they're presented to you if you interpret and I've got lived experience of this as a as a cancer survivor. I right. look at a lot of really ugly statistics, and actually, they were as far as cancer goes, they were really good statistics. Yeah. But I always zoomed in on exactly that. Well, I'm going to be the, not not even the unicorn. That's not fair. I'm going to be one of the unlucky ones, you know, in this in this cohort. And I, in fact, I wrote a post about it on Facebook quite recently, and it's now sort of three or four years three years since I've been finished treatment for cancer. And I, I unpacked all those biases and was like, I wrote this post called You're Going to Die. And it was how every single piece of information they gave me, whether it's consenting me for a medical treatment, telling me I'm not eligible to be in such and such a clinical trial, every single thing they said, all I heard was, you're going to die. <laughs> I've got this soon. And, and only later could I write about it and then even laugh about it and talk to you about it now. But at the time... I couldn't even talk about statistics. I could. I worried I couldn't even do my job, which does involve talking about risk. It does involve talking about statistics because it was so triggering. I couldn't even think about it. Yeah. So I thinking about it now. We're talking to you now makes me think that that yeah that 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 way of thinking. If we can help some, and I want well, I was going to say if we can crack it, but that's a very yeah. um, paternalistic way of looking at it. Sure. If we can help people for themselves break through some of that bias and 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 find themselves in the statistics in a safer way. Because I remember right at the beginning when I was diagnosed with cancer, one of my colleagues, his wife had been through it and, and he, he was like, 80, it's all big data, it's all big data. And I, I remember from the beginning trying to say to myself, yeah, Katie, it's all big data. You don't know what your journey is going to be, mm. but try and take solace in the data. But then I couldn't because even though the data was okay, it was pretty good as far as cancer goes, I still was looking at the wrong part of it. I was looking at, I was looking at the minority stuff. I don't know why. Yeah. Well, I wish I, you know, if I, you know, if we could crack this in this vaccination field, if we could crack it in cancer, we could probably spare a lot of people a lot of suffering. But I don't know. And I, actually I did come across some work recently that people were doing in cancer about fear and of the fear of cancers coming back and stuff maybe maybe they're going to start cracking it maybe i'll talk to them and say hey are you are you working with this are you working with the fact that people zoom in on the the unlikely but awful outcome rather than the more likely and good one actually katie and look if you're comfortable using your experience as a bit of an analog here i wonder are you able to identify anything that would have made you feel comfort in that time so like you know going back to katie of 3 to 5 years ago is there something that could have actually alleviated some of that fear? So I was suffering PTSD because I had a stage four scare. So they right. had to go and scan my liver. And if it was on my liver, I was fucked. Like I yeah. was, you right. know, right? So, yeah. And I had about four or five days of waiting to see whether it was on my liver. And it wasn't. So I got a good, I got a good outcome. And we've been getting a lot of bad you know, a lot of bad appointments where they're like, oh, you know, it's cancer. Oh, it's, yeah. it's in your lymph nodes. Oh, you know, and so, oh, it might be in your liver. And then it's like right. fully expected to turn up. Yeah, oh, it's in your liver. You're going to die. And it's like, no, it's not in your liver. Now you've just got to have all the treatments, then you can clear off. 
Mm. So I was really, really traumatised. And so every single statistic and risk and everything I encountered after that was filtered through my, not just my trauma, but the fact that chemo makes you feel like you're dying. Yeah. So you feel unhealthy, you feel horrible. And, and what, so I went to therapy, I did all the things, and my therapist helped me to understand that when I felt okay physically, because you do feel, you sometimes you feel okay, sometimes you feel like you've hit by a truck. When I felt okay, I could leave the dark thoughts behind. When I didn't feel okay, I was so preoccupied with what it felt like to be dying that it was all I could think about. So I don't know how you extrapolate that out to much wider populations, but maybe maybe there's something there in, in you know, I'm guessing people that are primed to be thinking negatively about what vaccine might do to them might be people who are worried about their health. And actually I can I can leave the personal side here and go back to research. Sure. Yeah. When we looked at childhood, people worried about childhood vaccinations, they often fell into two camps. And one camp was my kid's too sick to vaccinate and the other kid's my kid's too healthy to need too to healthy. be vaccinated. So mm. The whole my kid's too sick to be vaccinated, they're the group that I reckon, I reckon they're my people. Like they're like, oh, my God, I'm primed for all the bad things. Got it. It's going to be bad. But then, and but when I think about the people I went from that Flashpoint panel with, they all talked about how amazing their immune systems were. My immune, and we've, again, we found this in the research too, my immune system's so good or we have all these inputs. We have the organic food and the breast milk yeah, and the wooden right. toys and the Steiner school. And, and, and so what was fascinating about those parents is that they thought their kids were qualitatively different from, like, neglected, urban, poor, parents spent the Centrelink money at the races and, you know, was a goon bag. That unvaccinated kid was a qualitatively different kid from their unvaccinated kid, even though you bring in an infectious disease expert and they're like, there's two unvaccinated kids, right? Yes. Yeah, so there's so much differentiation within people's motivations and reasons. So those people who are those people who think their immune systems are amazing, and in fact, that's what the people on the panel were saying. They're like, "I'm not against this vaccine. I just don't want it." Which translated to, "I just don't think I need it." Of which there were elements of, "If I don't need it, there are some risks involved, and I don't want those risks because I don't need those risks." Yeah, sure. Which is just again an experience and a way of experiencing that choice in that moment through a very particular lens, which doesn't look at the, some of the more vulnerable members of community that are just praying other people don't infect them with something because it'll be absolutely disastrous, man. I mean, yeah, look, thank you for taking that to such a personal place. And I only asked you through that lens just to see if there was something in there about like, Honestly, like we're all scared for our lives in, in, in some way. And we all, I would like to think are motivated by what we think, what we think is right. Like in terms of like, we're, we're all concerned about safety, even if the way we conceive of that is different to each other and very individualized. I guess my question was really trying to kind of unpack, like, how do we, how do we reach people through fear? particularly if a lot of that fear comes from things that are already written before the stresses come into play, you know, and that's what resilience is about, right? And prevention. Absolutely. I don't know about you, like when COVID first hit, again, my, my, my specialty is in prevention, not intervention. So, but I got a ton of requests for for work. I got really busy Mm. and I found myself just being like, bruh, like 
I am a prevention guy. We're in the middle of a crisis. I can tell you what we should have done and what we can do. <laughs> I can't necessarily tell you how to fix what's happening right now. There are other more skilled people to do that sort of yeah. thing. So, you know, there's a couple of things I picked up on as you were talking. I guess one of them is this idea of coming from a place of, uh, I guess I'll call it humility, right? In like looking at science as, you know, a foundation made of quicksand. And I, I love that image. And just it, that's what it feels like when you're under pressure. You're like, I'm sinking because I don't know what is happening right as I'm saying this. But kind of understanding that, look, for me, like I, I, I'm a reasonably intelligent person, but I couldn't tell you the first thing about the scientific basis of any vaccine. Mm. My entry point into the discussion is I'm putting trust in the people that study this stuff and speak the language of this stuff more than I would put my trust in someone on YouTube that decides they don't like a particular part of an argument that someone has made or because they mistrust Big Pharma based on, yeah, some maybe some crappy stuff they've done in their business practices elsewhere. I, I don't see those two things as equivalent. You know, like the reality of business and like in a capitalist system is so much more complex than just homogenous entities acting consistent with their own values, knowing what the left hand is doing at the, you know, at the same time as the right hand. So for me, it's like, I know the reality is more complex, but I know there are way pe people way smarter than me that do this stuff for a living. And I'm also not holding them to that standard forever because these things change. Like human evolution and progress depends on us changing and understanding the world differently. So for me, it's more like, look, the people I listen to, are way smarter at this. They might not know it, but they certainly know a lot more than me. And they could be wrong. I could be in that 5% that, you know, has a really bad reaction. By the way, you keep, you keep saying those figures, but those figures are much too high. It's like... Yeah, sure, point, sure, sure. Yeah, exactly. zero, zero, zero. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Even I could be that zero, zero, one percent or whatever. You know, it's just like there. there's a degree of kind of like, you know what, I need to sort of be clear on what I know and be open to what I don't know until someone proves that. But that attitude of humility, I think, is really important, even for someone such as yourself, Katie, who is in a position of relative privilege by virtue of you're an expert and a thought leader in, in this field, where it's, that carries weight with people. And you might be an authority to tell people, hey, this is the lay of the land. But in an interpersonal level, like interpersonal, Katie, people who come to you as a friend might be expecting something very different from you. So the, 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 the conversation field changes and it, how do you, how do you, how do you even that playing field for people? And, you know, universities as like, again, like with these connotations of being a place of like intellectual elitism, I feel like that always comes up in the discussion when we talk about this stuff. It's like, ah, researchers think they know everything or these people are smart asses in their ivory towers they think they know everything and it's like well you're not actually listening to what they're saying like you might have a problem with the way things are said but yeah have we actually listened to what is being said are we listened have we listened to the way they've arrived at that conclusion mm. the conversation needs to be a bit more nuanced in that sense so there's that aspect of it that i think humility goes a long way in this and then and i guess the other thing is just socializing it by focusing on making societies genuinely more inclusive and increasing the opportunities for us to interact and live amongst one another and to see diversity of people's needs and gifts and experiences as a as a good thing that 
requires really good conflict resolution skills because when differences come into contact, they conflict, but they're not necessarily always bad. It's just about expending a little bit more mental energy in that moment to resolve that conflict rather than trying to eliminate, make those things happen. I've probably, I've I've just had a bit of a sermon, (laughs) but you really inspired inspired me with your work, Katie. It's just, it's really complex, but there's so much overlap and it speaks to something deeply human is I guess what I'm trying to say. That's good. Does that that track with you? It tracks completely with me. It just feels like a real human reaction as much as it mystifies me. And I have my questions, particularly for vaccine refusers around, well, how do you keep other people safe? Like, fine. If you don't want it, what is your plan for other people? Have you thought about other people? That's where I go. But that, again, has a lot to do with maybe my orientation, my experience. How do I then just dial it back a little bit so I can just kind of, or or should I, or should I be more selective with who I have those conversations with? But hopefully everyone has those people in their lives where they can find that mixture of challenging themselves with, but also feeling supported by people that are kind of on the same page, right? Like if we're just being realistic. Mm. Just to close us out, I just want to get some thoughts from you, Katie, on what you think we'll be worrying about going to the future and what we should be focusing on as, you know, as these things roll out. Well, I guess, you know, the the sort of the two pressing things that are coming online are Mm. childhood vaccinations now for five to 11s and and boosters. And down the track, we'll probably be looking at vaccinating, you know, six month to five year children. So, you know, that's that's an expansion of the program. It's also an extension of the program through like chronologically in that we don't know how many boosters we'll need. And it, it, you know, what experts have told me is that it's not necessarily like the flu where, you need a new a new vaccine every year because the wily old flu just keeps changing it up. Yep. We, of course, know COVID keeps changing it up too, but we do know that vaccines hold up pretty well against these new variants. Right. So it could be that, you know, after three doses you're laughing and then maybe you might need another another one in, you know, five years or so, who knows. Or it could be that you need them more often. We don't, I don't know yet. Yep. So... For me, as we kind of both extend chronologically, but but moving from crisis into containment, but then also as we extend the reach of the program down into younger people, you know, I just, I'm not going to be out of a job anytime soon. Like these are all things that are going to need to be done carefully and sensitively. We're going to have the challenge with vaccinating our paediatric populations in that um, we know there are going to be definite benefits in vaccinating our kids for their own good, also for their secondary benefits in terms of schools being open, soccer happening on Sundays, family holidays being able to go ahead, visiting the grandparents, or, you know, just, just giving our kids a normal life. Vaccinating that helps us give them a normal life, that also benefits them. But we know from childhood vaccination that parents in Perth are like, why do I need to vaccinate my kid against polio? There's no polio here. So people are very attuned to what's in it for my kid. So I think that's going to be a challenge to make sure we can adequately communicate to parents that there are both benefits for society but benefits for their individual child in in having the kid vaccinated against COVID-19. And then, yeah, boosters, and that will be in part a, a question again around what policy levers, do we change the status of are you only fully vaccinated at some point if you're boosted and the mandates kick in again or can we 
could this work on a more voluntary basis or strongly encouraged but not required? I don't know. I feel exhausted at the thought of all of it. But as saying that, as much as I feel exhausted about it, I also feel really excited about coming back to solve those problems. Oh, that's so good to hear. And we bloody need it. So (laughs) I'm really happy to hear that, even (laughs) if you deserve a massive break. Katie, thank you so much, like, not only for the questions I wanted to ask you, but for taking that into a pretty unexpected I wasn't planning to go there either, but I'm yeah, comfortable. I really appreciate that. And I'm sure our listeners will really appreciate just how much you humanized that experience for them. And, you know, again, not to falsely equivocate experiences like that, but they're huge windows into how we, like into very deeply human, vulnerable moments that might hopefully give a lens to someone. Like you've just given a lens to lots of other people to maybe look at this through. That's just much more human, which then makes the more objective, abstract information may be a bit easier to process. So I, again, I just really want to thank you for letting us go there with you. No worries. And in fact, I'm, I'm pleased to have gone there too because I keep thinking what will I take from what I went through and how will that be something that one day I might work with professionally. So for me to think about that negative priming, that that bias, and my experience of that might be something I can bring to the work I do in vaccination. I hadn't really thought about till I talked to you, so it's been really fruitful for me as well. Oh, I'm really pleased to hear it. And just as one last thing, Katie, like where can people find you and your amazing work? Oh, thank you so much. So, yeah, look, I'm a university academic. That's my bread and butter. I don't do much outside of that. So I'm, I'm on Twitter. I think if you search for me by name, Katie Atwell, spelling it properly, you'll, you'll find awesome. me. So I'm on yeah, Twitter. Katie Atwell with a double T. I've the hard way. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And um, as well as Twitter, I have a, a university profile page where all my research goes. I do try and publish open access as much as I can. Great. Um, I've written lots of profiles for the conversation, so you can find me that way. Thank you so much, Katie. All the best. You too, Costa. See ya. Ciao. Bye. You have been listening to Undesign a series of conversations about the big issues that matter to all of us. Undesign is made possible by the wonderful team at Draw History. And if you want to learn more about each guest or each topic, we have curated a suite of resources and reflections for you on our Undesign page at www.drawhistory.com. Thank you to the talented Jimmy Linville for editing and mixing our audio. Special thank you to our guest for joining us and showing us how important we all are in redesigning our world's futures. And last but not least, a huge thank you to you, our dear listeners, for joining us on this journey of discovery and hope. The future needs you. Make sure you stay on the journey with us by subscribing to Undesign on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else podcasts are available.